We are grateful, Lord, for song that expresses the longings of our hearts, that takes sound theology and puts it to music that resonates with our hearts. And we thank you for the reality of what we have just sung, that your mercy seat is still open, your heavenly throne is accessible to us. We can come into your presence and we can find help. And oh, Father, we're a, we're a needy people. We need help with our sin. We need help with our sorrows. We need help with our physical ailings. We need help for exhortation and encouragement to keep on the pathway of righteousness. We are faint. We're prone to despair. We're prone to giving up. And Father, we need help. And the help that we need is the help that you give. Thank you that as we have sung, we can come to you and find you to be accessible and helping. The passage before us is a hard one. Some of us have really wrestled with this. The words are not particularly difficult to understand. But it's hard to live. In America, most of us don't have enemies that would persecute us. But it is true that sometimes we have personal enemies that seem bent on our destruction. They are opposed to us. And the flesh has all kinds of ways of responding. But you have a different way, a way that is revealed in this word. And here is another reason that we need to come to you for help this morning. We need help to do this because this is, this is opposed to everything that we want to do. So would you guide us? Would you give us understanding? Would you give me clarity so as not to obscure the true meaning of the text? And would you give us all transformation? For we need transformation. We need hope that what you say is the right way to go. So would you guide us as we consider this passage in Christ's name? Amen. Like you, I have had relationships where it's been pretty clear that the other person didn't like me particularly much. Those are hard relationships, aren't they? Uh, you've had them. You've experienced them. You know the difficulty and the weight of that. 
But I don't know that I've ever had a relationship that I could say that someone really hated me, as in really wanted my destruction, was out to do me physical harm and to destroy my life. There are those who have had those kinds of relationships. Guido Debray was the author of the Belgic Confession of Faith and a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. He was imprisoned for his faith, for his opposition to the Roman Catholic Church, and he was sentenced to death. In April of 1567, he wrote to his wife to encourage her in the faith, even while death awaited him and death would come about six weeks after he wrote this letter. It's a long letter. But among other things, he noted this. I am held in a very strong prison, very bleak, obscure, and dark. On my feet and hands, I have irons, big and heavy. They are a continual hell, hollowing my limbs up to my poor bones. The chief constable comes to look at my irons two or three times a day, fearing that I will escape. There are three guards of 40 men before the door of the prison. I have also had the visits of Monsieur de Hamed. He comes to see me, to console me, and to exhort me in patience, as he says. However, he comes after dinner, after he has wine in his head and a full stomach. You can imagine what consolations those are. He threatens me, and he says to me that if I would show any intention of escaping, he would have me chained by the neck, the body, and the legs so that I could not move a finger. And he says many other things in this order. But for all that, my God does not take away his promises, consoling my heart, giving me much contentment. That's a remarkable last sentence, isn't it? When you're hated, when you're hated to the point of persecution, what do you do? That's the very issue that the Apostle Paul addresses in this last section of the book of Romans. We're going to look at part of that this morning and we'll look at the rest of it, verses 17 to 21 next week. It flows, in a sense, naturally out of the entire chapter. So you'll remember Romans chapter 12 is the beginning of the transition in the book of Romans, that he's moving from theology to the working out of that theology, the practice of theology. And in in verses 1 and 2, he says you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You need to be sanctified. You need to live a different way. You need to think a different way. And part of the overflow of that thinking is, he says in verses 3 to 8, you've been given spiritual gifts and you need to exercise and use those spiritual gifts for the benefit of the church body. And then in verses 9 to 11, he talks about relationships within the church body and how those relationships, as we exercise our gifts, ought to be filled with love for one another, care for one another, affirmation of one another. And then... We need to love one another, even verses 12 and 13, in the context of suffering and difficulty and hardship. And then he shifts in verse 14 and talks about those who persecute you. So there are relationships within the body, verses 9 to 13. 
that ought to be filled with love. But what about relationships where it's hard when people are out to persecute you? And that is where he will spend the remainder of this chapter. How do you, how do you care for people? How do you relate to people who want to destroy you? What do you do then? Well, Paul says in verses 14 to 16, when people are personally opposed to you, be a blessing to them. When people are personally opposed to you, when people want your destruction, when, when people want to harm you, when people are working actively to harm you, you be a blessing to them. And in these three verses, Paul will provide us with six priorities when people are against us, six priorities when people are against us. The first of these is in verse 14. And he says, when you are persecuted, love and do not hate. When you're persecuted, love and do not hate. There is a, there is a marked shift between verses 13 and 14. Starting in verse 9, it seems to be clear that he's talking about relationships within the body of Christ. So he talks about loving in verse 9. He talks about brotherly love in verse 10. He talks about relating honorably with one another in verse 10. He talks about serving the Lord in verse 11. He talks in verse 13 about contributing to the needs of the saints. So building up and and ministering to physical needs of those who are in the church body. In verse 14, he changes And he says, bless those who persecute you. It is hard to think about relationships in the church body being the subject of persecution. And so I think what Paul is doing here is he's moving outside the bounds of the church and he's saying, what do relationships out there, outside, beyond the doors, what do those kinds of relationships look like when you're persecuted? These are antagonistic and adversarial relationships. These are, these are the kinds of relationships that are completely contrary to what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. So I don't think he's talking anymore about believers. I think he's talking about unbelievers and when unbelievers want to destroy you. What then? What do you do then? It's important for us to learn to suffer well. We talked about that last week. Every believer needs to learn to see God's goodness in the midst of our suffering. But here in this verse, the apostle is talking about something far more than just suffering. He's talking about persecution. He's talking about animosity. In fact, this word persecute in verse 14, it is it is the same word as pursuing in verse 13 or practicing hospitality might be translated pursuing hospitality. Same word. There's an intensity of desire There's a vigorousness to seek after something. And in this case, in verse 14, it's not seeking vigorously to do good to others, to be hospitable to others, but is pursuing aggressively and vigorously the harm of others. There's no particular evidence that as Paul writes this letter that the Roman church is being persecuted, though in A.D. 49, some Jewish believers had been sent out of Rome, uh, though they were later able to return. But this idea of persecution is common in Paul's letters. 
Consider, for instance, Philippians chapter 1, for to you, he says in verse 29, it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It is, it is part of the blessing of salvation that he has given to us that we might suffer for him and alongside him. That was certainly the experience of the Thessalonian church. He says this in 1 Thessalonians 2.14, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. You suffered. How do you respond when you're suffering? Notice what he says. Bless those who persecute you. And in case we think that he has misspoken, he says it a second time. Bless and do not curse. Bless those who persecute you. That means that we want the blessing of God on those who persecute us. We want, we want blessing for those who would do us harm and have animosity against us. They want destruction for us, and we want God's blessing for them. To bless our persecutors doesn't mean to say something nice to them or to say something nice about them, like we are prone to do in Texas. Bless your heart, which is the nicest most condescending dig and knife to the heart that can be said, right? Bless your heart. What an idiot. (laughs) That's really what that means most of the time. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's not just saying, say something nice. But to bless them means to do something kind to them to be involved in their lives in such a way that we are actively doing good in their lives. They are pursuing our suffering. They are pursuing our harm. And we are pursuing their good. We are treating them as our friends. And brothers and sisters, that is radically against the flesh, isn't it? This goes against every fiber of my unsanctified spirit. I don't want their blessing. And what is particularly notable about what Paul says is that their persecution is against us particularly. This is personal. This isn't just living in a culture that is opposed to Christianity where the culture does things to shut churches down and to limit activities and to persecute in general. No, this is specific against me. Someone wants my harm. Notice what he says, bless those who persecute you. There is some question about whether that word you was actually what Paul wrote or whether it Uh, An editor later added it in, but frankly, it's irrelevant whether it was there by Paul or not. He means us to understand that. 
when he says, bless those who persecute, he means us to understand you. They personally are attacking you and you personally are responding to them. Your attackers, your critics, those who want to harm you. And then, at the end of the verse, if we still haven't captured it, he makes sure that we understand, he, that he understands exactly where our hearts want to go. And so he says, bless, bless, and do not curse. I don't know about you, but when someone does something mean to me, My heart wants to retaliate. Cards on the table. The preacher wants vengeance. It's true. It's where the heart goes, isn't it? He says, don't curse. It is is easy to pray an imprecatory psalm against someone who's persecuting you. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 69. Listen to his condition, verses 20 and 21. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. I looked for sympathy, there was none. For comforters, I found none. They gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they give me vinegar to drink. No one is here to help me. Everyone is against me. How does he respond? You're going to love this. May their table become for them a snare. And when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation on them and may your burning anger overtake them. That's the psalmist's nice way of saying, Lord, would you fry them? No, I'm serious. He wants the fullness of God's wrath to destroy them. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents. May none dwell in their tents. For when they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten, and they tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded, add iniquity to their iniquity, and may they not come into your righteousness. God, condemn them with every bit of your wrath and do not justify them. Do not save them. That's easy to pray that. But seeking justice from God takes no act of moral courage or evidence of redemption. Brothers and sisters, it takes the Spirit of God to do what the Apostle Paul calls us to do in these verses. Bless You're persecuted, bless, and do not go into cursing. That's that's the work of the Spirit, to be able to call down blessing on, uh, on those who want our downfall. But isn't this isn't this exactly what our Savior did? Remember what Peter says, first Peter chapter two. You've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 
while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. This is... This is what he calls us to do. Matthew chapter 5, we read it this morning already. Verse 44, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Paul says don't only just pray for them, but bless them. Work for their good. Isn't this exactly what Jesus did when he was on the cross? He prayed for his persecutors. He prayed for those who were seeking his destruction, seeking to end his life. And so he says in uh, Matthew, I said 23 in my notes. That's not right. Matthew 27. No, that's not right either. Hmm. Um, Well, I know it anyway. When he's on the cross... He looks at them who are dividing up his garments. And what does he say? Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Father, would you bring them into a place where they are repentant for their sin? Would you bring them to a place where they, where they are repentant and broken and that they might be saved? Brothers and sisters, Part of our blessing of our persecutors, those who are seeking our harm, is to seek their salvation, to pray for their salvation, to ask God to save them. There's going to be a tendency when you are suffering and when people are out to harm you to say, I'm going to break this relationship. I don't have to put up with this. I can walk away. When, brothers and sisters, the Lord may be putting you in that relationship of suffering so that you can be a light of Christ to that person so that the one who wants your harm can hear from you the words of truth that will lead him to salvation. And when your heart is saying, I'm out of here, Can you say in that moment, I am here for the purpose of the gospel? For if I leave, perhaps that will be the last gospel influence in that person's life. And I will endure. I will stay so that that brother who is not yet my full brother can hear the gospel and be saved. We need to ask, has God put me there for gospel reasons? And can I bless this person with the gospel? We, we need to learn lessons about suffering in this world. As Americans, we need to learn to suffer. We, we do not suffer well. And I put myself in that category. When I say we, I mean we. I I don't suffer well. I don't suffer well physically when I'm sick. Regina's told me numerous times, you're not a very good patient. You're a whiner. (laughs) She said it more nicely than that, but that's what she meant. That's true. And when we suffer hardship and we don't get what we want culturally, we're, we're, we're not very patient. 
we don't suffer well. But brothers and sisters, we not only need to learn to suffer well, we need to learn to bless when others are out to destroy us. That's what Paul says. Bless, bless, do not curse. There's a second thing he tells us. When others are joyful, rejoice. There is a question among commentators, and I think I read more about this this week than anything else in this text. The question is, in verse 15, is he still talking about persecutors, or was verse 14 just a one-off where he's talking about those who persecute, and verse 15 he's talking again about those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. And good commentators take both positions. I am inclined to think that the apostle is keeping on in the theme of talking about those who are opposed to us, in part because in verse 17 it is really clear that from 17 to 21 he's talking about our enemies. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. In other words, someone's done you harm, don't respond harmfully to them. And that goes all the way through the end of the chapter. And I think what the apostle has done is in verse 14, he's just shifted entirely. He's moved from church relationships to un- unchurch relationships or unbelieving relationships. And that's going to carry the theme all the way through the end of this chapter. And so the question here then is, how do you respond, verse 15, if your enemies are rejoicing? In fact, how do you respond when anyone rejoices? Even, even if he's talking about believers, I don't think he is. But how do you respond when people are rejoicing around you? When they get something and you don't. You don't get the blessing. You don't get, you don't get the relationship that you want, that they have. You don't get the family that you want and they have. You don't get the finances that you want and they have. And it just seems like they're getting more and more and more and more good and you're getting nothing. How do you respond then? Paul says... You rejoice with those who rejoice. At times it seems like that's easy to do. I mean, somebody's happy. Your friend is happy. It's typically not too hard to be happy with them. What about when it's your enemy? What about when your enemy gets something good? Can you rejoice when your personal enemy has prosperity? Notice that the apostle puts no limitations on this. Bless, verse 13, verse 14, those who persecute. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. The sense is rejoice with whomever is rejoicing. Doesn't matter. Friend, co-believer in Christ, enemy, rejecter of Christ, hater of Christ. If they're rejoicing, you rejoice with them. 
Now, side note, that does not mean that we need to rejoice in their sin. So if they are gaining prosperity by sinful means, we don't have to rejoice in that. But if there are happy things in their lives that are legitimate means of happiness, we need to rejoice with them. Listen to what the psalmist says. Psalm 37. Do not fret because of evildoers. Verse 1. Do not be envious toward wrongdoers. So the psalmist there says, don't worry, don't be anxious about those who are getting prosperity who are opposed to you and opposed to God. But here, Paul takes it another step. He not only says, don't be anxious, he says, rejoice with those who are opposed to Christ and even gaining. Says one commentator, the point of the exhortation is that we are to enter into this rejoicing as if the occasion for it were our own. If we love our neighbor as ourselves, if we appreciate the community within the body of Christ, the joys of others will be ours. So Paul says, even when people are opposed to you, you rejoice with them as if, as if what the blessing that they received was your blessing. The gift that they have is your gift and you respond as if you had received it. It's no shallow joy. It's a genuine joy. Let's be honest. When our enemies have success and are joyful, we are prone to jealousy, resentment, anxiousness, worry, righteous indignation. (laughs) Even as I say that, I think about... um, a little game the girls used to play when, when they were little. You know, you'd driving down the road and they see a VW, right? You go, slug bug. And, and one of them would say, slug bug, I got it first. And the other one would say, no, you didn't, I said it first. And you know where it goes right after that, right? Dad, I got it first. I said, it doesn't matter. No, Dad, it matters. It's not fair. It's not fair. It's not right. And when the unrighteous prosper, that's my heart and yours, isn't it? (laughs) All right. Lord, how can the unrighteous prosper so much? And Paul says, I know the inclination of the flesh is that if they are rejoicing, we are weeping, and if they are weeping, we are rejoicing. And Paul says, no, no, you need to turn that on its head, and you need to rejoice with them, and you need to weep with them. Paul does this himself. Paul takes his own counsel. Philippians chapter 1, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well-known through the whole Praetorian Garden to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Watch verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, and though some also from goodwill. 
The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel, but the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Some are preaching Christ, not for the sake of Christ, but to gain pelts, if you will, spiritual pelts, and and cause Paul pain and grief and anxiety and envy. They want to harm Paul and Paul's reputation. What does he say? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. I don't care that they're prospering in an unwise, in an unrighteous way. It's all about Christ, and I can rejoice. Can you think about your opponents? Who hates you? And can you rejoice with them when they're experiencing blessings and favorable circumstances? That's our calling as believers is to rejoice with them. And brothers, when we don't rejoice, it shows a lack of sanctification in our own hearts. The problem, frankly, is more with us in that instance than with them. There's a third perspective, priority that the apostle gives us. It's the end of verse 15. When others grieve, grieve, weep, with those who weep. Weeping is what we do when we experience suffering, when we experience death. Weeping is what we do when the really hard things of life happen. And that we weep over others' griefs means, as one commentator says, that we are not indifferent to the sorrows of others. We care about them. When we weep, For others, we are demonstrating the compassion of God who cares about the sufferings of sinners. Remember Jonah? Where did he go? Say a Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. Chapter 4. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He runs from Nineveh. God shows him that he's sovereign, that God shows Jonah that God is sovereign. So Jonah goes to Nineveh after all, after catching a big fish, I mean getting caught by a big fish. And Nineveh repents, chapter 4. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed, (laughs) There's an anomaly, isn't it? He's angry and he's praying. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. I knew you would do this because this is exactly who you are. You care about sinners and you love to see sinners saved. 
You weep with sinners. When we weep with sinners, we demonstrate that we have the heart of God. Did you notice something else in this verse? I've not drawn attention to it till now. Look at the prepositions. He does not say rejoice for those who rejoice and weep for those who weep. What's the preposition? With. Rejoice with. Weep with. What does that mean? It means we are bodily with them. In their presence. It's not that we are caring from a distance, but we are coming alongside them and engaging with them. We are in their presence and we are holding them and we are talking with them and we are rejoicing with them and we are laughing with them and we are weeping with them. And we're handing Kleenex boxes while we ourselves are wiping our tears away. We are not dispassionate, but we are integrally connected with them. Do you ever wonder why God gives us the emotions He gives us? Why does He give tears? Why does He give laughter? Why does He give fear and anger and a sense of aloneness? Because all those emotions reveal what's going on inside of us. And when the apostle says, rejoice with, weep with, he doesn't just want us to be changed from the inside out. That's true. But brothers and sisters, he wants others to see that we are changed from the inside out. You ever had a great loss? Someone died? You got the cancer call? And somebody said, let me come be with you. And they come, and they don't say anything, but they pull that chair up as close as they can, And they put their arm around you. And they weep. In that moment, what's going through your mind? My brother loves me. My brother cares for me. My brother's with me. Why do we rejoice with and weep with those who are enemies? Because when we weep with them, it communicates to them that we care about them. And then, as the Lord opens doors, we have opportunity to speak into their lives the hope of Christ that will give them satisfaction in their sorrow. It's tempting to want to run from our enemies. And brothers, when they are particularly weeping, 
that may be our greatest avenue into the gospel for their lives. We talk a lot around here about wanting to be more evangelistic. Maybe one of the best tools that we have is to love our enemies and to weep with our enemies so that we can speak the truth and the hope of Christ into their lives. You know, one of the reasons they're weeping so hard is because without Christ, they're absolutely hopeless. And my guess is that many of them know that and understand that. They understand that the the folly of what they are leaning on. And when we weep with them, now it gives us a venue to say, let me show you a better pathway than what you're doing. When others grieve, grieve. In every relationship, be impartial and unity-minded. That's verse 16. Be of the same mind towards one another. To be of the same mind means to have an attitude or an opinion or thought about something that is unified with the others around us. It is, it is to have the same opinion of others It means that our attitude towards others, believers and unbelievers alike, is uniform. To be of the same mind in a word is to be impartial. I don't play favorites. I don't say, well, I'll treat this brother this way and then this brother this way, but if he makes enough progress, then I'll do this for him. No. Every brother, every person gets the same treatment regardless. We're impartial. And notice what he says. Be of the same mind. Be impartial toward one another. I think that's in the body of Christ. And I think it's outside the body of Christ. Anyone with whom you're connected, anyone within your circle of relationships... We are of the same mind with everyone because, brothers, we're all in the same place, aren't we? We're all made of the same stuff, flesh and bone. Oh, it looks a little bit different from person to person and it's shaped a little bit different. And some of it is younger and some of it is older, but it's all the same stuff. There's nothing different about any of it. And brothers and sisters, we're either all in the same position or we all started in the same position. That's Romans 1 to 3. We're all born in sin, under sin, controlled by sin, dominated by sin. The only thing we knew how to do was sin. And you go outside these doors and what are you going to find? You're going to find a lot of sinners that were just, that are just like you were. They're no different than you. They're no different than me. When someone hates me, they're doing the very same things that I did before I was redeemed. So I don't need to act as if they're doing something so terribly different. We're the same. And those of us who are in this room who have come to know Jesus Christ as Savior... We can treat each other the same for the same reason. 
because we have this we have a common physician that we received in the same way it's all because of Christ it's not because of what you did it's not because of what i did it's because of what Christ did i want you to notice one other thing in this verse he says be of the same mind don't be haughty in mind and do not be wise in your own estimation that word wise is do not be mindful Three times in this verse, he uses a derivative of the root word mind. In other words, you gotta, you gotta act differently and it's gonna start in your mind. You have to start thinking a different way. Before you're gonna act differently, you need to think differently. You need to control your mind. You need to control what you meditate on. And when your heart is inclined to say about your enemy, I'd love to see his destruction. I'd love to see him get that cancer call. I'd love to see him in a car accident. I'd love to see his obituary in the paper, friends. That's the kind of thing that you need to stop meditating on. Because of Christ and what Christ has done for us, we have no right to have those kinds of things, have those kinds of thoughts. And if we're going to act differently, we're going to need to learn to begin to think differently. If we're going to treat others well, both our friends and our enemies, we need to change our thought patterns. And one of the first ways that we need to think is, I am not preeminent. We all have the same needs. I am just as needy and just as desperate for Christ as my enemy. And that's where he'll go next. In every relationship, be a servant to the needy. Do not be haughty in mind. Don't think too highly of yourselves. In verse 3, he says, don't think too highly. But... But think of yourself as the way you ought to think. So rightly evaluate yourself. Consider who you really are in Christ and how God has positioned you. And Paul would have us to understand that there is a temptation when we're in Christ to think, look at what I've attained. No, no, no. Stop thinking highly of yourself. Stop thinking about protecting yourself. Stop thinking about protecting your reputation. And instead, in fact, that little word in the middle of the verse, but, is a strong contrastive. So don't do this, don't be haughty, and instead do this, associate with the lowly, associate with the needy, affiliate yourselves with those who are undistinguished, affiliate yourself with those whom you are typically prone to overlook, Care for those who are beneath your station. And who's our example for that? Oh, that would be our Savior, who is known as the friend of sinners, like you and me. Our tendency is to think that we are worthy of being associated with those who are more influential than we are. God says we are worthy to be associated with those who are less influential. You care for those 
who are needy. Says one commentator, there's to be no aristocracy in the church, no cliques of the wealthy over against the poor, no pedestals of unapproachable dignity for those who are on the higher social and economic strata or for those who are in office in the church. How contradictory to all such pretension is the character of the church's head who says, I am meek and lowly in heart. You care for those, even who are your enemies, who are needy. And then lastly, in every relationship you have, be humble. So Paul says at the end of verse 16, do not be wise in your own estimation. Don't assume that you are wise and shrewd and perceptive and capable. Don't, don't think that you are special because of your salvation. You are not. You were on the outside and be, and you are on the inside, not because of anything you are. You are on the inside only because of what God is. Notice also that when he says, do not be wise in your own estimation, that, that verb, do not be, is a present imperative. In other words, don't have the habit of being conceited. In other words, there's a very real temptation to, to cross over and say, I'm something, I'm exalted. Don't go there. As you relate to others, particularly unbelievers, be humble towards them because you're no different than they are. You and I only have what we have because of grace. Our relationships with unbelievers will improve when we understand that we are no better than they are. We are simply graced by God's kindness. So be humble in your thoughts. This humility is a good place to be. It's hard to be humble, isn't it? It's hard to be humble. The pride is always raising up. We always think, I ought to be able to take care of this myself. I ought to be able to do this myself. I'm enough. I'm enough. The psalmist, Psalm 118, said, From my distress, I called upon the Lord. I've been meditating on that verse all week. And it has been particularly striking to me that preposition at the beginning of the word, verse, from. And the sense almost is that God had to put him in a distressful situation so that he would learn to call to the Lord. It's in his weakness. It's in his despair. It's in his inability to do anything that he pleads with the Lord and then he says in verse 7, The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. Same theme as what we have found in Romans 12 this morning. I don't have to be anxious. I don't need to be bitter. I can look satisfactorily on them. Why? Verse 8 
because it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. We don't have time to unpack all of it. But could it be that the Lord has put you in a distressing situation with a persecutor so that you will learn and I will learn not to lean on ourselves and to lean on him because that's a far better place. Relationships are hard. Relationships with enemies are particularly hard. Listen to what Tim Lane and Paul Tripp write in their book, Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. The hardship of relationships is not just that they can be difficult. The hardship includes what God calls us to be and do in the middle of the difficulty. God calls each of us to be humble, patient, kind, persevering, and forgiving. God calls us to speak with grace and act with love, even when the relationship lacks grace and we do, we do not, uh, excuse me, and we have not been treated with love. Because of this, your relationships will take you beyond the boundaries of your normal strength. They will take you beyond the range of your natural abilities and beyond the borders of your natural and acquired wisdom. Relationships will push you beyond the limits of your ability to love, serve, and forgive. They will push you beyond you. At times, they will beat at the borders of your faith. At times, they will exhaust you. In certain situations, your relationships will leave you disappointed and discouraged. They will require you to do They will require what you do not seem to have. And that is exactly as God intended it. That is precisely why he placed these demanding relationships in the middle of the process of sanctification, where God progressively molds us into the likeness of Jesus. When you give up on yourself, you begin to rely on Him. When you are willing to abandon your own little dreams, you begin to get excited about His plan. When your way has blown up in your face again, you are ready to see the wisdom of God's way. Relationships are not easy, but they are necessity. They are God's means of sanctifying us. And they are God's means of blessing others. They are God's means, even at times, of blessing those who are enemies. So, bless those who persecute you. Bless. Do not curse. And you will be satisfied in Christ. Father, this is hard. Some of us have these relationships even right now. And I understand that this has been a weighty word from you. But we trust it. We believe it to be true. And by the Spirit of God who indwells us, 
we are committed to doing this. I think of the man who was confronted by Jesus and he says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, we believe this. Help us to live where we do not believe it in our hearts. And help us to do this so that we would be a light of Christ, not just to the world in general, but to those people whom you have brought specifically into our lives who are opposed to us and need the gospel. Father, might our blessing and might our restraint from cursing be, I was going to say this year, but be even this week our great testimony for the evangelistic power of Christ. And would you give us an opportunity this week to bless and not curse and then to give a reason for the hope of the gospel that is within us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.